Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Good. We got a lot of stuff on the agenda today. Let me run through uh, the bullet points here. We have something called LSAT India, which I've never heard of and which Ben is going to explain to me. We have a note uh, about turning off texts while studying and maybe just turning off texts generally. We've got a study to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about correlation to causation. It's a really important flaw. Many people don't even understand what we're talking about when we say correlation to causation. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then that's going to lead us into a clarification from the Power Score Logical Reasoning Bible. Ben and I have been going back and forth for weeks about this uh, couple pages in the Power Score Bible, which we think might be slightly wrong, and so we just want to put it out there. We have a letter from a listener, and we also want to go through a reading comprehension passage from the June 2007 test. So we are uh, chock full of content today. Ben, you think maybe we should just dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. What is LSAT India? Okay, so the other day I came across these LSATs, and uh, it's free prep test number two. We all know uh, free prep test, the the one that LSAC provides, the June 2007 LSAT. Well, some uh, website had posted these other uh, LSATs, and at first I was like, I've never heard of this. What the heck is this? Is this real? Is this legit? And you open up this LSAT, and so you have free prep test number two, free prep test number three, and free prep test number four. And they're actually from pretty recent. So prep test number two is from 2009, but it was a test that was administered in India. So it was made for India or students who are taking the LSAT and planning to go to law school in India. Anyways, uh, it's got some good stuff here. It's a, it's a full-blown test. It's definitely by LSAC. It's got their logo and everything. I don't think someone would have gone through all the pain and effort to create this perfect copy. Uh, and then looking online, I did find some mention of it. But here's the thing that I thought was so funny. On the prep test cover, which looks like every other prep test cover that I've seen, it has, except for this one thing, it has a tagline that's been trademarked, and it's specifically for LSAT India. So it says, LSAT India, colon, and then here's their little tagline, all you need is reason. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I was like, we don't have one of those in the United States. So... um, Anyways, like there's no little tagline on our prep test, you know, like Here all you need like is faith. <laughs> LSAT USA, give us your money. Give us your money. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I don't have any thoughts about the LSAT India tagline, but I do have some thoughts about the LSAT costing so much money. Yes. Wait, hold on. Let me tell you one more thing before yes. we go on to that. Uh, so, so I was looking at these games. And one of these games has to do with Silicon Village. So I thought that was that was interesting too. Silicon Village. <laughs> but yeah. so but but these were real LSATs that they did administer just in India, not in the United States. That's exactly right. And they administered different tests in India because they're worried about cheating. 
I guess. But see, they they would be worried about cheating all over the place. And from what I understand, whenever they administer a test that's pretty far away in terms of time zone, they're going to administer a test that was a non-disclosed previous February LSAT. Right. So I don't know why they would go to the trouble of making a special test just for India. The small, brief uh, stuff that I saw online was alluded to the fact that somehow these were tailored to students who were planning to go to law school in India. But I don't understand how that is any different. This is a full-blown test. I'm looking at it right now. It just looks like anything else that you would have expected. The names are a little bit different. Like in logical reasoning, they sound a little bit more like names you might expect to hear in India, I guess. But okay. that's it. So... Are the logic games like modernish? If they are, oh, yeah. I could see using them in class just to get more extra practice, especially if they're free. They are, and you know, they sound actually pretty similar to games that we've seen elsewhere. Uh, it's almost like they took and they changed the the variables a little bit, and they changed the rules a little bit. So it's a new game, just like they would do with any game. But some of these games sound very similar to you know the stained colored windows game in test 62 yeah one kind of it's different but it you know kind of has the same feel so but they feel like they've got the lsat imprint on it like it's not just some made-up bullshit from princeton review or whatever it's no. you, you can tell it's like a real lsat test yeah to the to the t because I've, I've recreated these tests in word and it is a nightmare to try to format it in the same way that they do um, and you become intimately detailed, <laughs> familiar with their formatting for like AM and PM and all that stuff, uh, a headache I would not wish upon anyone. And this is following all of that. Interesting. LSAT India. Well, I'll have to take a look at those games at least. Might might want to steal those and start using them in class. Yeah. I don't know what the status is of these tests uh, because it was on this website and then Literally a week ago, they were taken down. So I don't know if LSAC is thinking, hey, we don't want these free tests available anymore or what. But they were. it was on uh, Cambridge LSAT. So. Huh. We, we should get into that a little bit. I mean, I don't want to like poke the bear too much with the LSAC because I'm sort of dependent on them for my livelihood. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know. Not really. I could still teach even if I didn't have the license, right? Yeah, I just have to buy all of the tests, um, which ironically I kind of do anyway. I use their their books of ten because the books mm -hmm. of ten are cheaper than the license fee that I have to pay for printing the individual tests. Yeah, but um, it just struck me the other day. I was thinking about it. How is it the case that they charge for every single practice test except for one? I mean, their defense is going to be, "Well, we have the fee waiver," but mm -hmm. even with the fee waiver, it's not like you get. A copy of every single test mm -hmm. yeah. meanwhile the rich kids can just go buy every single test so now we have a situation where literally the people with more money have better access to the practice materials yeah yeah how how is that happening how, how is that happening in 2016 it just seems like such an easy way that you could make the whole system a lot more fair is by just open sourcing all of the old exams. I mean, they can mm -hmm. still charge to take the test. They could still charge for their own explanations, which they do in the super prep books. 
Mm-hmm. They could still charge for the credential assembly service. Mm-hmm. They could still charge for a million things, but instead they like are printing money off of selling these tests to people, which then reinforces the rich kids doing better. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I'd be curious to hear how much they feel like creating one of these tests costs. I do think that like, it takes time to write questions. I have no idea how much money they're pulling in from all these tests versus how much it costs to create a test. But I do know that uh, I send them a decent amount of money for a very small portion of the LSAT universe. So I imagine they're making a lot. Well, of course they are. I mean, they're making a zillion dollars off of every student and they could, they could, why not just charge? If if that's their cost of doing business, I mean, I understand that. Sure. Of course they have to make the test. They have to, they have to recoup their costs at the very least. And I'm not sure why they need to profit, but if they are going to profit, I, that's fine. People in business need to profit, but the way they're doing it, I mean, why not just charge more to take the actual LSAT and then give more fee waivers for people who can't afford it mm, instead mm-hmm. of restricting access to the the like indispensable prep materials? Mm-hmm. You know, if you I mean, if you're taking the test on September 24th and you haven't done the prep tests in the 70s, then you're just shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, it's ridiculous not to do the prep tests in the 70s. Yeah, but to do the prep tests in the seventies, you would need to be paying what is it, eight dollars a test for the brand yeah. newest ones. Yes, that's correct. So there's going to be you know whatever that is, sixty or seventy dollars that it works out to that you would, and and you should probably do the ones in the sixties as well. Now those ones you can get cheaper because you can buy the book of ten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But still, we're looking at a hundred dollars to do the the tests in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, and that's a hundred bucks that like the poor kids just don't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I it to me it just seems like a pretty easy way that they could make the world a tiny bit more just. It's not like the rich kids aren't gonna always have advantages no matter what, right? I mean, the rich kids are gonna hire you to be their private tutor, mm-hmm. and and they're gonna hire me to be their private tutor, and of course that's a huge advantage. But the bulk of people don't get tutoring and don't get that kind of help, and so meanwhile we're we're just we've got this system where. The people who can afford it have the actual test questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, just, just kind of struck me the other day. Well, here's one thing. Uh, if they are making a profit, I mean, they are a nonprofit organization, which doesn't mean a whole lot. But if they are making a profit, where is that money going if not back into future tests? Like, I, I don't see them necessarily having officers that are being paid extraordinary sums right because they're just uh managed by all the law schools yeah i've heard rumors um of some boondoggle kind of things where they're taking um this is just rumors uh but (laughs) i shouldn't even be saying anything but rumors of them taking fancy trips where they've got like where they're bringing law school admissions folks to Hawaii for an unnecessary vacation kind of thing. Oh, to like use up excess <laughs> income, I guess. And rate. <laughs> we, we don't know what to do with all this money. <laughs> we, we need to just take all the law school admissions folks out on a 
month-long vacation. No, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know what's going on. I just... It, it does, it strikes me when I write my check to the LSAC every year. I mean, I can't believe how big it is and you do the same thing. And you and I are just these tiny little, we're these tiny little nothing compared to the, the really big fish out there in the world. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how much yeah. does Kaplan pay every year to the LSAC? How much does Princeton pay every year to the LSAC? Mm-hmm. Like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars going back to the LSAC through these license fees. Yeah, I do know when uh, Testmasters was in talks with LSAC, I remember them releasing a statement that they said they owed $900,000 in back royalties. So presumably, presumably Testmasters had been paying LSAC some, but they the the amount that they had hidden from LSAC was 900000 So who knows how much they were actually paying. The other thing I don't know is what time frame that was over was that over five years ten years whatever but still it's a, it's a lot of it's a lot of money uh if you try to imagine how much test masters had been paying all that time in addition to that and test masters is nothing compared to kaplan or princeton yeah and then what about all of the direct sales you know the number one most popular book on amazon in the lsat category is the actual official volume five book Mm-hmm. And what is that if not just paying the paying the LSAC for access to the tests? So I mean, they're just like they're they've got to be swimming in money. It can't cost that much to write this test. I mean, if they wanted to hire me for a million dollars a year, I'd take care of it. And I know they're making more than a million dollars a year. <laughs> in a year, I'm pretty sure I could write three or four LSAT tests. Lock you in a room, say. No swearing on the test allowed and get you, get you started. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. All right. Anyway, let's move on before we the, the LSAC police come and break down our door. <laughs> Their security operation. Yeah. Well, one last story. Did you remember when um, – did you hear the story when uh, – let's see. I think it was USC – there's some school in Southern California. Someone broke in and stole the test. Have we talked about that before? I don't think so. Yeah, so this was in the 90s, I think. Uh, someone broke in and stole the test for a friend the night before the test, gave the test to the friend. The friend paid this person, I think, $150. So not a whole lot here. The person was unfortunately caught, and LSAC canceled the test and claimed anywhere from I, I can't remember if it was two hundred and fifty thousand to five hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars in damages. Now, damages claims are always way overblown for probably strategic reasons. But the point is, is that they, without blinking an eye, tried to claim a, somewhere around a half a million dollars in damages just for recreating the test. Yeah, I mean, I could buy that. I I could see I could see how how they think it costs them that much money to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, just interesting stuff. Who knows what's really going on? It'd be nice if they kind of revealed that thought process, especially since they have not created a book for tests thirty nine to fifty one. This is another sore point. Have we talked about that before? No, but it is weird. I mean, there's just that gap, 39 through 51, where you can't get 
those tests unless you pay <laughs> there's like books these crazy books on sale for amazon on, on amazon that are like four hundred dollars or whatever to get the tests <laughs> you can also buy my logic games playbook by the way since i used um tests that are in that gap yeah no that's a it's a, it's a good point i steve schwartz i think is his name right is he the guy who does uh, lsat blog yeah new york city yeah, so he had an interesting email conversation with LSAC and then ended up posting that on his blog. And I remember reading it, and he asked why they hadn't created that book, which would make things a lot cheaper for people trying to get those tests. And their rationale was beyond ridiculous. It was, well, when we looked at the the tests that were being bought at the time, so at the time they had the book that covered test 29 to 38, which is that sort of purplish, orangish book, they had that book of 10, and then they had a bunch of individual tests from 39 up to like 60 or something. Or it must have been 61, I guess. And they said, okay, we're going to make another book of 10. But we looked at the sales data, and it looked like everyone was buying tests 29 to 38, not surprisingly, because they're only $2 a test when they come in the book format. And everyone was buying the, the most recent tests. No one was buying the tests from 39 to... 48 or 51 or whatever or not as frequently so we figured people didn't want those tests and we didn't make a book for it but they cost eight dollars a piece that's why people weren't buying them that's why people weren't buying them of course it's the stupidest thing ever and, and the reason they were buying the recent ones because if you're gonna spend eight dollars per test you might as well buy the ones that are right out of the oven right so i don't know so then it's, it's like a logical <laughs> reasoning question that they completely failed on, yeah. you know well, that's not surprising so after they but after that conversation with Steve, then they ended up um, starting again. They, they 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 cranked up the printing presses because now they're they are doing. It looks like all the tests are coming out in these books of ten now. Yeah. So I mean, this is right after they had made the the green book, which is test fifty two to sixty one. He asked, "Why did you start there? When you started up again, why did you start there? Why didn't you start with test thirty nine? And that was their rationale. If we decided to start there because that's what everyone was interested in. Well, all right. Now they've at least done um, the the volume five book with prep tests sixty two through seventy one. Yes, and I'm expecting they're going to make a volume yeah. six book with seventy two through eighty one. Yes, I expect volume six to come out. It's nice that they finally have volume numbers on here. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they're probably going to only do that on the fifth one. <laughs> they're going to go back to their awesome naming convention. So, if, like, the sixth one is going to just be, like, another ten. <laughs> oh, they already did that with the next no. ten. Well, yeah, so they did the next ten. Then they have the green book, which is 52 to 61, is the new ten. Ten new, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ten new actual official LSAT prep tests with comparative reading, which, by the way, has not gone away. But now we have ten actual official LSAT prep tests, volume five. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I would I'd love it if they chose your title. Another ten actual <laughs> volume. Yeah. No, no, no volume, right? No. Maybe they could add something like, with more substitution questions. <laughs> yeah, some more LSAT tests. Uh, anyways, sorry, total, total digression. There. Nah, good times. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to our next item here. You found this study on IQ. Uh, you want to read this? Yeah, so to say I found is a little strong. My dad emailed this to me, 
And uh, I don't know if it was a subtle message, like maybe you're decreasing your IQ by texting. I highly doubt it, though, because I don't ever text him or anyone. So let's see here. It says that there was this study that was done at the University of London. And basically, they were looking at uh, what text messaging and constant emailing does to someone's IQ. And the conclusion was basically that there was an average of a 10-point loss if you were very active in terms of texting and constant emailing. Now, of course, there's a whole correlation causation problem maybe here, but they found that for women, they lost on average of five points, and for whatever reason, men lost 15 points. So don't text a whole lot. The supposed rationale for this was that by constantly texting and sort of being alert to these incoming messages and responding to them, you put yourself in sort of a constant state of stress and alertness. And it's a very, very mild form of the sort of fight or flight mechanism that we are all so familiar with. And what that effectively means is that you're increasing the levels of uh, the stress hormone cortisol, I think that's what it is, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyways, you're re increasing the, the levels of that stress hormone in your system sort of constantly. Granted, it's a very low-level stress, but it's still there as opposed to not being there. And when you're not constantly checking or being sensitive to, sensitive to the fact that you might be getting incoming texts, that stress can go away. So... So the point is turn off your turn off all your shit. There you go. That's what they really should have said at the beginning of this article, but <laughs> instead they got into the nitty-gritty of it. Yeah, turn your stuff off at least while you're studying for the LSAT. I mean, I, I, I see people all the time who who get you know, they're working on a problem, they get a text message and I don't know what's going on. Maybe they're expecting text messages from from their boss or President Obama or something. And yeah, you should take that text message. But most text messages are a waste of time and now you've just redirected attention from a very important activity to probably a totally useless activity and increased your stress levels, thus decreasing your IQ. I mean, obviously the interruption while you're actually trying to think about the LSAT. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you need to turn your shit off when you're in LSAT class. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, your teacher will notice and will, I, I never say anything to people because I figure, Hey, they're my customers and they can do whatever they want. But you know, I do sort of subtly judge people who are doing that in my class <laughs> it's like how important is this to you really you know you're you're complaining that your scores aren't going up but mm -hmm. you're not you're here which is great but then you're not actually giving it your full attention i mean I, I don't know but this study actually seems to go further than that right this is actually um more like permanently you need to turn off these so-called productivity tools yeah, which does get back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, taking email off of uh, how I took email off my phone. And I haven't entirely done that. What I've what I've done is decided that the best solution is to deliberately do email at a certain time and then otherwise not be doing it as opposed to sort of checking and, you know, looking at it occasionally or something. Like it's a set time I'm going to sit down and do what you suggested 
clear out the inbox, be done, and then not check again until it's a deliberate time like, oh, this is the time I'm going to start doing this again, as opposed to just perusing email in between stoplights or something stupid like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I absolutely do that still. I did turn off my notifications on my text messages. Oh, yeah. Nice. I like texting, but I... it no longer, it's always been silent. I always have everything silent, but it, uh, it, it doesn't even, um, it doesn't vibrate. It doesn't do anything. You know, it just like turns the, like there'll be a little number that'll pop up. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go into your phone, you're like, Oh, I got some as opposed to my phone just vibrated. I want like that is that itself is like a waste of, of brain energy. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, then you even get to the point where, you feel phantom vibration in your pocket because you're so used to it that you mm-hmm. like you think your phone vibrated even when it didn't. You know, oh, did I get a nibble? Did I get? Oh, someone wants to talk to me. I'm really important. Yeah, I still check it way too much. You know, I I reflexively just glance at my phone all the time to see if anything has come in. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, so you're telling me that I would be way smarter if I didn't do that. That's what that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. And since you're a man, apparently it's going to have even more of an effect. So I get plus 15 IQ points Yeah. if I throw my phone away. <laughs> I might, I don't know. I might do it. Although sometimes I wish I was dumber. Because then I uh, could like watch the NFL and just be like super excited about it. And have Doritos? Yeah, totally. Bud Light. <laughs> 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 All right. Do you think we covered this topic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's get into this correlation causation thing. This is, I I introduced the correlation causation flaw in class as the LSAT's second most common flaw. Mm -hmm. That's completely unscientific, by the way. I just decided that sufficient and necessary was the most important one and that correlation causation was the next most important one. Yeah, I've never sat down and done a study either, but I think you're right. I think it's the most, second most common yeah, that's what I always sure. say. I'm just it, just intuitively that's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I definitely didn't do a study either. But you were saying that um, it seems to you that some people don't even understand what we're talking about when we say correlation to causation flaw. Yeah, I think there's so I think there's an understanding that there's correlation going on and there's causation going on. But when I say, uh, oh, this is a correlation to causation flaw. I found that some people don't realize why I'm saying correlation to causation, just like I would say part to whole or whole to part, which are different flaws. When I'm saying correlation to causation, and I, I'm assuming this is what you're saying too as well, Nathan, uh, we're saying that in the evidence, there's been a correlation established, and a correlation is simply... Uh, evidence that shows that two things are happening together or at the same time, two different events are happening at the same time, and they seem to consistently or frequently happen together. And then we're drawing a conclusion, and and in that conclusion we're saying that one of these events causes the other. So by going from correlation in the premises to causation in the conclusion we've 
made a correlation to causation flaw or error by jumping from one to the other. And so that's what I mean by correlation, premises, to causation, conclusion. So an example of that would be, suppose studies show that having access to the prep tests, uh, people who have access to the prep test have higher LSAT scores. That's right. That's a correlation between two events. Okay, and then the, the then the argument would say, therefore, having access to the prep tests causes you to have a higher score. Yep, causes or any other causal verb, which would be like increases or effects or something like that. Yeah. But that's not unreasonable, is it? No, correlation certainly supports causation. It just doesn't prove it. Okay, so it might give us reason to suspect that one thing causes the other, but it doesn't mean that the one thing has to cause the other. Yeah. So in this case, in my example, there could be alternate causes, something like, no, it's just that rich people have access to the test, and being rich also has all kinds of other advantages, like hiring private tutors and that sort of thing. And so... You know, yeah, the rich people do have access to the tests, but it's not actually access to the tests that's causing the higher scores. It's the fact that they're rich and that they have a private tutor. That's what's causing them to have a higher score. Yeah, so that alternative explanation would explain the correlation and provide an alternative cause, thus weakening the conclusion. Okay, it weakens the conclusion. And if it were a flaw question, we would say simply you have uh, inferred causation where only correlation has been shown that's right yeah okay one thing about i think the reason that the lsat tests correlation to causation flaws so frequently is that because i think we're hardwired to make them and i was telling the class last night that i i am no <laughs> i am no anthropologist or a scientist in any way but i can i can fully imagine that our ancestors who did not make correlation to causation connections, that did not try to see correlation between two things and then realize that or assume that one of them caused the other, are probably dead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, they very frequently, they very frequently do. I mean, when one thing causes the other, they are almost always correlated, right? So when you see yep. correlation, there's very frequently causation. But yeah, the caveman who was like, man, I set my face on fire and it really hurts. Yeah. Huh. And doesn't, does not make the, doesn't make the leap to say, oh, I wonder if fire is bad for my face. Mm -hmm. That guy didn't make it. Yeah. Probably. But all, all, <laughs> all our pre uh, LSAT nerds, uh, unfortunately, have probably been passed away. You know, they, they didn't uh, reproduce because they probably thought, well, just because all my friends got sick when they went to the pond doesn't necessarily mean that the pond made them sick. So I'm going to go ahead and go as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Anyways, we're hardwired to jump to these conclusions. And I think that's why sometimes people read correlative statements and they immediately think, that a causal statement has or claim has been made. Right. It's a, it's a natural thing. The one thing to watch out for, well, I mean, you want to watch out for alternate causes, of course, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, alternate explanations of why the correlation exists. But you also could, there, there's one particular kind of alternative uh, interpretation that is also a standard weakener or a standard, uh, they can even describe it as a flaw. And that would be, um, I'll just do it by example. I went to the hospital and I discovered that uh, there were a lot of sick people there. You know, if you walk around outside, there's only 1% sick people. But when you go in the hospital, it becomes like 25% sick people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Therefore, um, the hospital causes people to be sick. Yeah. And um, we can all just recognize that that's ridiculous. The um, obvious rejoinder would be, hey, wait a minute, you you didn't think about the possibility that maybe they were sick before they went to the hospital and that actually the reason why they're at the hospital is because they're sick. In other words, it's sickness causing you being at the hospital rather than being at the hospital causing you to be sick. Yeah, well, it's the fun LSAT questions, which are which do happen are when they give you that sort of example, right? And then they say something like, therefore sickness causes people to go to the hospital and everybody's like yeah that makes sense and then the answer is like fails to consider the possibility that the hospital makes people sick <laughs> you know yeah. that's true yeah you, you do actually have to think about it both ways and you have to think about alternate causes right yep yeah because the, there could be like fails to consider the possibility that martians are shooting sick beams or something like that where it's like well <laughs> Something I never thought about, but if it's true that there's these Martians that are shooting sick rays into the hospital windows, then it's not the sick people going to the hospital, and it's also not the hospital making people sick. It's these Martians that are making people sick. So you have to think yeah. about the alternate cause. So I'm sorry, the the connection's a little bad, Nathan. Did you just say sick beams? Sick beams, yeah. Yeah, okay. Just wanted to make sure that was a thing. They can change their ray guns to, there's like stun, kill. And then there's one that just you, like make you have a cold. Oh, you know, that actually kind of sounds like uh, the Star Trek movie that just came out. Yeah, did, did you, you see it? it? I did. Yeah. I saw it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember they shot him with the green stuff and then they like got old. Uh, did that happen? I got to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> that movie did not make a huge impact on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll just tell you that the, the beams made people old and then they eventually died. But it happened really fast, so they effectively died within like a couple minutes. But I think that was why that that well, spoiler alert. But I think that's why that guy was able to live for so long. Oh, uh, I see. I see. Yeah, I honestly I don't even remember how that. I don't remember. You're talking about the brand new one, Into Darkness. Yeah, the brand new one. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I totally watched it, and I don't remember Jack about it. It was all right. I like the new Kirk and the new Spock. I like those Wait, dudes. They're cool. Into Darkness is the old one. This is the Beyond one. Oh, sorry, Beyond. That's what I meant. Beyond. Yeah. No, I did, mm-hmm. but I did just go see that one. Yeah, the one that's in yeah. the theaters. I did see it. I just don't remember which, anything. Which about was it. it was good that it had Green Day. That that kind of made me want to buy Green Day. Oh yeah. Did you like Green Day or no? Eh, all right. That's fine. Eh. <laughs> I'm more of a. You're never gonna like the same kind of music. This is horrible. I'm more of a rap music kind of a guy, Ben. Okay, well, I listened to Cypress Hill once. Nice, excellent. Do you like? Is Cypress Hill good? I don't know. Um, I think they were like one of the sort of groundbreaking uh, rap groups way back in the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just have this feeling that the the guy's voice is really kind of high pitched. Yes, or something. he's got a weird, kind of whiny kind of a thing, but it's pretty cool. 
That was insane in the membrane, right? Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll put that on hold. So, should we talk about this power score stuff? Yeah, you. It's it's your kind of issue. We we touched on it. Quick. <laughs> it's my issue. No, no. You're not gonna back me up on this one. No, That's I'm okay. I'm totally gonna back you up. But it's just that um, it was your student, I believe, who was talking about it a lot. So, I think you're more versed in this than I am. Sure. No, that makes sense. Yeah, a long time ago, I don't remember what episode at all, but we talked about the concerns that we had with some of the things that were said with the power score sorry, in PowerScore's Logical Reasoning Bible about correlation causation. And uh, a student of mine kindly dug this up because she had been reading it recently and felt like it was a little confusing and wanted to understand what we were saying. And I said to her, you know, honestly, I have not seen that book in a long time. Who knows what it's actually saying? It's probably legit. And so she sent it to me and we've had a lot of back and forth about this, as you were saying, but ultimately, I feel like, and it sounds like you feel like as well, although I'm ha- happy to talk about how we might disagree here, but seems like this is going too far. And so the point that they're trying to make in the Power Score Bible, if I can summarize this up, is that when someone says that smoking and increased rates of lung cancer are correlated. Therefore, smoking causes or increases your chances of getting lung cancer. That person is claiming that smoking causes lung cancer and at the same time assuming that there is no other causes that can create lung cancer and that it is the only cause that is creating lung cancer. In other words, smoking is the one and only thing that causes lung cancer. And I just felt like this was an an extraordinarily strong assumption that this person does not necessarily have to be making when they draw that conclusion for their conclusion to still be weak and unproven. Yeah, and they say this a couple times here. Your student sent us the page reference so we could look at it. Yeah, And it says, when an LSAT speaker makes an argument like the one above, that is with a basic causal conclusion, he or she believes that the only cause is the one stated in the conclusion and that there are no other causes that can create that particular effect. And then they say it again in the next paragraph. So they're serious about it. It didn't, they didn't just like accidentally do that. They thought about it. I think the, the problem here is that you don't, have to be assuming that to still have sort of a an answer choice that says, hey, there could be some other cause and have that answer choice weaken your conclusion. I think if you were making this assumption, then that answer choice would destroy your conclusion. But that's not what they're asking us to do in weakened questions or even in flawed questions. They're just saying the argument fails to consider the possibility that maybe it was something else. Um, Yeah, well, this wouldn't even apply on a flaw question, right? I can actually see how this is 100% wrong on a flaw question. Okay. Because on a flaw question, if, you know, it's an evidence-based kind of a thing where you're supposed to identify the flaw that they actually made. Mm -hmm. And if they say A uh, A and B are correlated, therefore A causes B, it would be incorrect to say that they have assumed that A is the only cause of B. 
Yeah. They didn't do that. They said A causes B, but they didn't say A is the only cause of B. So you can't say that's the flaw of their argument. Yes. So here, I mean, and they do cite here, they specifically say this is most evident in weak and strengthen and assumption questions. It's interesting that they don't mention flaw questions. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think what they were, I mean, you know, give them credit. I think their point is alternate causes are weakeners. Yes. Yes. And so I think that's totally fine. If you if you just leave it there, that's fine. But I would not take their whole thing here of like every time they say A causes B, therefore that's the only cause of B. That that's just not true. And then you brought up a um, a specific question that you wanted to cite, right? I've got yeah. it in here. Prep test mm-hmm. fifty two, um, section one, question number two. Mm-hmm the wrong answer yeah you would i think if you took this this thing too seriously out of the power score bible you very likely might pick the wrong answer because the wrong answer is the argument has presumed that all that that this is the only cause basically yeah so if you take this literally you're going to then read that answer choice and say this is it whereas really the answer choice is about an alternative cause <laughs> which is what i think they're trying to get to but they get to it in sort of a I don't know, straw man way. Like they're they're making the argument yeah. weaker than it is to try to like prove their point. You know, they're teaching. I I don't know. I mean, I I'm I would give them a lot of credit. the The logical reasoning Bible's been around for a long time, and I think it has helped a lot of people. So I think they're probably wrong here. But um, if you look at my mountains of stuff that I've written, uh, I'm sure you'll find plenty of things that are a little bit. Uh, over the top, you know, that go further than what is probably actually justified where I'm trying to make a point, but the way I make the point, I end up like overstating it, mm-hmm. you know, you're like trying to teach, trying to like demonstrate, and then you can end up like kind of getting a little bit ahead of yourself. So I don't think this would be reason to, uh, you know, burn the entire book or anything. Yeah, no, I wasn't suggesting that I was just suggesting to, um, Give it to your friend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just a just an interesting point. And the thing here is that I was surprised, as my student pointed out, is that they they really do kind of try to make this a a big deal. And so I just thought it was like a one line that was sort of misinterpreted, or I had misinterpreted earlier. But they really do like to say this. So, anyways, just something to think about if that's confusing for you. Bottom line, though, is just remember that if you have correlation in the evidence and then you have causation in the conclusion, it's certainly possible that that correlation is supporting the conclusion, but it's not necessarily proving it because there may be an alternative cause or maybe the causal relationship is reversed. And those are just problems that weaken the conclusion. They don't disprove it by any means because they don't have to be true either. And that's all I'd remember. Perfect. Okay. We have a letter here that came in uh, yesterday. I thought there were a few issues that we might want to touch on. So I'll just read it kind of quickly. It says, hi, Nathan and Ben. Uh, Love your podcast, et cetera. Thank you. It says, um, I'm seriously freaking out about the September test. The first time I took the LSAT with no preparation uh, was in what was last year, December. 
I almost didn't get to take it because I brought my phone into the testing center. That's how unprepared I was. They reluctantly let me go in the exam room after I left my phone with a stranger on the street. <laughs> Holy cow. And then came in three minutes late. Wow, sorry, I hadn't read that. Yeah. Um, interesting, okay. Such a disaster. I don't know why I even decided to take it with no prep at all. Yeah, this test is very learnable, and if you don't prepare, um, boy, that is a pretty tragic mistake. The second time was this June. I studied with the Princeton Review. I fully could not grasp what I needed to learn, and I struggled. Uh, I didn't take any classes because I learn better when I can figure things out by myself. Unfortunately, I didn't figure out sooner that I shouldn't have used the Princeton Review books. As you can imagine, I didn't do well on the second attempt. <clears throat> I'm skeptical at this point. I think classes do help people. <laughs> um, I think you can save yourself a lot of stress and agony by having someone who really understands it explain it to you. Mm -hmm. And so she's saying, you know, I, I just, I need to learn it by myself, but okay. But she's failing to learn it by herself. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would suggest, um, getting some help maybe rather than continuing to bang your head against the wall. Bo both scores suck big time. 139 and 142. I have a GPA of 3.0, which is not that great. She says, then she says, I got C's in every class that's taught by that one particular professor, though he promised me that he will write a great letter of recommendation for grade C students like me rather than grade A students. Hmm. I would not seek out a letter of recommendation from someone that gave you a C. By giving you a C, they said, I think this is where you're at academically, and I don't think they can get around saying something along the lines of what grade they gave you. They may not say what grade they gave you, but they don't think that you produced A grade work. So, I don't know. I'm... I would be hard-pressed to pursue that professor. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you want a professor who legitimately believes you to be exceptional academically. And as much as your teacher, this, this professor likes you and, you know, maybe wants to recommend you for your hard work, etc., they don't think that you are an exceptional academic candidate. I mean, they think you're an average academic candidate. That's why you got C's in that class. Because the other people in the class got B's and A's. And you just didn't do as well as they did. So I just don't know how that letter is going to really help your case that much. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the letter. Because that just worried me. Yeah. I think that this professor is probably going to try to say really good things. But I think the the unspoken message will be okay, we understand that she works hard, but it sounds like she didn't score as well as the other students in your class, given what you're sort of suggesting here. And that message may be picked up by admission officers and taken in the wrong way. I mean, does the? I guess the professor can write a letter without saying what the grade was, right? Yeah, I certainly think that the professor can, but the problem is the professor can't come out and say she performs really well academically and so I don't think the professor is likely to do that. I mean, they could. They could just patently 
seems like a like a lie almost, right, for what they believe because they gave her a C. So I think they're going to have, I think if they're going to write a positive letter, they're going to say something along the lines like, this student works so hard, came in all the time, blah, blah, blah. And reading between the lines, I think it might become a little clear that the person did not score as high as they could have or as other students. I mean, you don't have to read between the lines. She's applying with a 3.0. Yes. So you, you, com- you combine that letter with what you know about the GPA and you say, oh, hmm, maybe this was... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I would go so far as to tell her to not use this letter. I, I I think it's probably fine. I mean, whatever. She's she probably doesn't have a lot of better options for a letter, and the letter's not what's going to get you in anyway. Um, if you've got a letter, you know, you've got a relationship with this person, and they say, you know, yeah, I'm going to write you a really strong letter of recommendation. I I guess I think it's okay. I'm just worried about. I'm worried about this candidate generally. I'm I'm afraid generally. Um, so let's get into a couple other things here. Sure. It says, um, my priority is the LSAT. As you both emphasize in almost every episode, I am completely aware that this score will be the determinant for my chance of getting into a law school. My point is I am screwed if I screw up next month. Starting July, I cut out my social media plus life plus friends, etc. I study 30 hours a week with PowerScore, LSAT trainer, and real LSAT tests from 52 to 71. I've been getting zero to four errors at most in logic games. Logical reasoning and reading comprehension are still in need of more work, mostly concentration and speed. Well, speed is not your problem. Your problem is you're missing questions. Mm -hmm. Currently, my scores fluctuate between 152 and 160, which she says is so odd. And I don't think that's odd in the slightest. Uh, most people are going to have a range that their scores are going to fluctuate between. And, you know, if you've been going between 152 and 160, I think that's a 156 plus or minus four. And that's a totally mm-hmm. reasonable, normal range. That's not at all exceptional. That's not remarkable in the slightest. Yeah. Everyone's scores are going to fluctuate until you start getting 180 after 180 after 180, which no one does. So mm-hmm. everyone's scores are going to fluctuate. Yeah. And an eight-point range like that is totally within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. I have only one month left, and I am freaking out since this is my last chance. Do you suggest postponing it to December? I don't know how much I can improve in one month. I really need slash want to get above 165. Um, that's basically it. She said um, not to use her name to refer to her either as Spider-Man or something exotic like wasabi potato chips. <laughs> Let's go with wasabi potato chips. I like chips. wasabi potato chips too. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, WPC. WPC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so wasabi, first of all, congratulations on going up to the mid 150s i guess it sounds like she started in the low 140s and uh high 130s and is doing i mean that's great that's extraordinary progress my first question would be do you really need to get she says she i really need want to get above a 165 do you really need that uh we've talked about this a lot lately about going to the lsat gpa calculator Anne Levine was talking with my students the other night, and she said that 
REACH schools are schools in which you have a 25% chance of getting in. And uh, I thought that was a, a good number to keep in mind. In any case, do you really need that score? Because I talk to a lot of people who have this number in their head and they're like, I have to get that number or else. And I'm like, well, uh, where do you want to go to school? And it's like, I don't know where that number came from. Uh, I think it comes from talking to friends who maybe have different goals and different GPAs or whatever. And so just really make sure that's what you need. If it is, assuming it is, the question then becomes, can you get above a 165 in a month and right now you're scoring in the mid-150s? I don't know, but I think it's less likely. Yeah, that's a very big improvement. I mean, people don't tend to score 152 and also 165, right? They can score 152 and 160 in a range that's centered around 156, but 165 is going to be... That's a significant number of more questions correct. So yeah, the odds of making it in time for the September test are... Not great, but then again, you're already signed up for the September test. If you start scoring 165 before the September test, great. If not, yeah. you just withdraw. Right? She, she's got the option on taking it in September now. So I would probably advise just pretend like you're going to take it on September 24th. Keep prepping hard. Work at it every day between now and then. September 22nd, you can look at your score your scores from your practice tests and you can just decide, Oh yeah, I've, I've scored a couple 164s, you know, I'm going to take a shot at it. Or you can decide, Oh, I'm still scoring a lot of 156s and I shouldn't take it. Yeah. In which case you just withdraw and sign up for December. Yeah. We've mentioned this a lot before, but withdrawing the night before is a very, very viable option. The only, only downside is that you, lose the money you spent to reserve that spot which sucks but in the grand scheme of things it's a drop in the bucket and i think it's by preserving that option is almost always the best option for most people for some people it's clear that you just need to stop and not go to the next coming lsat you need to go to the one after it but for so many people it's unknown until you get closer you're just not going to know until it's too late to have canceled officially, so you're just going to have to do the withdrawal the night before or take it. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I would just keep the option, and then um, if you have to eat the $175, you have to eat the $175. It's another example, of, by the way, of how the system really does <laughs> benefit richer people. Um, if you're more wealthy, It's actually the correct strategy, I think. If you're wealthier, I think you should just go ahead and sign up for whatever the next upcoming LSAT is, um, just so you can always, just so you can have the option on it. And if things really go well for you, then you've got to, you know, you'll be able to take that shot. Um, Mm -hmm. And if it, and then if it doesn't work out on that test, then you can always just take the next shot as well, because $175 doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah. She asks a little bit about how to study, but I don't think I would, you know, she's. She's asking, like, should I should I bump it up to four practice tests a week? And I tend to say no to that. I don't know what you think. Oh, no. Uh, one thing I've been saying a lot lately, and I think it's true, and that is that taking tests is 
a valuable learning experience. You're learning how to endure through five sections back to back. You're learning how to regulate your timing and not go too fast in most cases uh, and just stay focused on what you're doing. There's a lot of things that you're learning. But I think that tests are also um, predom- like maybe mostly just sort of an assessment of where you're at because of your inability to get almost instant feedback. Like I'm, I'm almost valuing 35-minute timed sections more than full-length tests now because you can do the section and then start reviewing it and have the energy to review it right after you're done, remember what you were thinking, things that you just cannot do after a two-and-a-half-slash-three-hour test. Yeah, and and people will very frequently skimp on the review when they do a full test. It's just human nature. They do a full test. Now they've got all this review they need to do. And maybe they do some of it in the beginning, but then they just, by the time they get to section four, you know, another section of logical reasoning or whatever, and they've mm-hmm. made these mistakes. And then I just, I can tell that they're, they haven't been looking at them. They haven't been reviewing them. Yeah. Um, I've entirely stopped doing full tests in my classes. I, I do one on the first night just so that we can all, you know, just so that people who are total virgins can dive in and see what it's like to see, to see all, all of the different question types or different section types. Yeah. But I don't even do further full-length tests because I would rather teach. So what I do now in class is just a ton of 35-minute sections. We just do a section and review and a section and review and a section and review. And I think that they get way more out of it that way because they're forced to immediately start learning from their mistakes. Also, um, I think you can learn every bit as much about timing by doing one 35 minute section as you can by doing a whole four or five section test. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. the, your pacing shouldn't change whether you're doing four or five sections. Your pacing is the, whatever that pace is within the 35 minute section that gets you the most points. Yeah. So in class, we just now focus on only 35 minute sections and I'm, I'm really enjoying the way that's going so far. It seems less, taxing on the kids and i think they just get more out of it because we do the immediate review so yeah so wait do you not proctor any other exams except for that first one then yeah no that's it just the one huh so you still t- tell people to take full length tests i actually don't their own. no i don't i don't even care oh interesting so i wouldn't go that far i still feel like there's value in feeling what it's like to go back to back to back because I think there is a drain in that and I do think there's value in taking tests alongside other people some people who seem to be wigged out by that and so getting in there and doing it well seems valuable I mean but but we're taking we're taking tests shoulder to shoulder every night in class it's just that we're only doing one section so the the nerves part I mean the nerves and distractions and whatever I mean we're regular we're we're in the we're in test mode every night of class Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there's sweaty, nervous people <laughs> tapping their pencils and whatever They're, that's every night in class. So I, I do believe, you know, you need to expose yourself to this environment. I just don't think you need to expose yourself to the environment for three straight hours because I just don't think it makes any difference. Um, when I look back at my own prep process, uh, I don't think I ever, no, I know for sure. I never did a single full 
test in one sitting before I took my test. Hmm. So, you know, it's, 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 it's clearly not necessary. Could it help? Absolutely. Uh, but is it necessary? No. And it's just not something that I'm focused on anymore. Hmm. Yeah, well, that that's going a little farther than I would, but hey, you know, that's good that you're doing all those thirty-five minute sections in class. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So, um, back to Wasabi, I I would say, you know, she's already studying thirty hours a week. She says, mm-hmm. and she's working mm-hmm. full time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think you need to up that at all. I think you're you're doing okay. She says she does two sections a day and reviews on the weekdays, and then she does full tests on the weekends. Um, I think that's fine. If anything, that's more than you need to be doing. And, and the quality of your review is the important thing. Mm-hmm. You know, why did you miss those questions? That's the important thing. Not how quickly can I get done with the review so I can do another test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more how much value can I squeeze out of the review. Here's another thing I would suggest. Uh, when you sit down to study, try to recall from your memory, not from any notes or anything of that form, what sort of takeaways you had from the day before because you may remember, like if you're just trying to force yourself to remember, like, oh, yeah, I learned this and I learned that, uh, you're only going to remember or recall a couple things. And then if you look at your notes and you're like, oh, there's these other things that I learned, and you do that for a couple days, then you really end up internalizing those ideas so that they're now like fluent in your mind and not just a thought that you had at one point in your study yeah, session. Totally. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Wasabi, for writing in. Good luck. She says she listens to the podcast while she's training for her marathons. So um, that's like double torturing herself. And she works full time. That's crazy. I know. Yeah. Dude, these, good luck. Good luck. Yeah. These people are amazingly hardworking. Um, okay. Last thing we wanted to do a passage of reading comprehension. We're looking at the June 2007 LSAT, which is freely available. If you just Google June 2007 LSAT, it'll pop right up. Um, we are going to do passage two in the reading comprehension. Reading comprehension on this test is section four, I believe. And uh, passage two, you immediately notice that there are two passages, not just one. There's passage A and there's passage B. It says the two passages discuss recent scientific research on music. They are adapted from two different papers presented at a scholarly conference. And then here's passage A and here's passage B. this is the comparative reading, so-called comparative reading. It, it uh, started in 2007. It was such a big deal that the LSAC released this June 2007 um, test for free as a practice test so that everybody could see it. They've put one comparative reading passage on every LSAT since then. I don't think it's a big deal at all. What do you think? I don't think it's a big deal at all either. Someone was asking me the other day, they said, hey, I, I like comparative reading. Is that weird? <laughs> and I said, uh, no, I don't think it's weird. Uh, something about the fact that the passages are shorter and then that's easier for her to digest the information. I definitely know the students who say they absolutely hate them, and I know students who say they like them. I think it's pretty evenly mixed. And I would say for the people that hate them, 
I suspect they just got some bad comparative passages up front and then did a little quick math and said, I must not like this kind of structure where it may have just been the passages themselves or the content of the passages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to say that too. Small sample, just one or two or three of these and they, you know, they missed a bunch of questions and then they just decided that they were going to hate the comparative reading. I've had people skip the comparative reading, you know, people who are only going to do three passages. Mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that they always skip the comparative reading. Um, I don't think that's really that great of a plan. I mean, why why do you suck at the comparative reading? It's probably, I think my, my hypothesis would be that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you've, you know, you've decided that you're, you suck at this. And so now you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if anything, think that there may be a little bit easier. Um, the fact that there's two different speakers, you get like a reboot in the middle, right? Here in line 27, we're going to all of a sudden have a different speaker coming in. Mm-hmm. And that different speaker, I think, gives you an opportunity to catch, you know, it's like you got some idea what passage A was saying, but you didn't, you know, you get a little bit confused or something. But now we got to restart with passage B. And I think maybe you have a better chance of comprehending. But if I just don't think it's really that different. I mean, I, if I were doing the test, I think I would barely even notice that this was a comparative reading passage. Hmm. Yeah. I think you read the last one, so maybe I'll read this one. Sure. Okay. Passage A. Did music and human language originate separately or together? I I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to know. That's why I'm reading this. Yeah. Um, Well, I can already predict that passage A is going to be about that. You know, like that's probably going to be what passage A is going to answer. They've asked this question. Now that's what they're going to answer. So I'm going to pretend that I actually care whether music or and human language originated separately or together. I'm going to say my guess is going to be that they originated together. Let's see. Both systems use intonation and rhythm to communicate emotions. Both can be produced vocally or with tools. And people can produce both music and language silently to themselves. So those are a bunch of similarities between music and human language. If anything, that would seem to suggest that they did originate together since that's our, that's our question. Mm-hmm. Now, just because they started off that way, I'm almost expecting there's going to be a, but yeah, like, Oh, but actually they're totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Brain imaging studies suggest that music and language are part of one large, vastly complicated neurological system for processing sound. In fact, fewer differences than similarities exist between the neurological processing of the two. One could think of the two activities as different radio programs that can be broadcast over the same hardware. One noteworthy difference, though, is that generally speaking, people are better at language than music. Hey, can we stop there for Mm -hmm. a half second? So you've stopped at some interesting points after the question. Then after the first paragraph and saying, oh, they're saying that they're pretty similar, so maybe they're going to say that it's different. And then what they went on to do is say that it's similar, right? In fact, fewer differences and similarities exist between the things. Yeah, getting similarities after similarity after similarity, and then we just got to one noteworthy yeah. difference. And if you're not recognizing this structure that Nathan is 
pointing out, then you're not, you're only reading sentence by sentence or something. Like you should be aware of these transitions. And sometimes I might even, this might be where I would write a little line between the word can and the word noteworthy, just so in my mind, I can, I, I'm bringing a little more structure to the paragraph than just the paragraph indicators themselves. So I'm like, oh, that's where things kind of change. Yeah, I mean, you and I differ on that. I don't ever write anything down, but mm -hmm. I certainly did notice that. I mean, you have to be reading this for comprehension. It's called reading comprehension. There's no mm -hmm. way around that. You have to read and understand the passage. The way I do that is I'm engaged with this, you know, they asked a rhetorical question at the beginning of the passage, and then they're, they're going on to explain it. And so I'm now listening to their explanation, and I, I still haven't gotten to their real opinion yet, right? They gave a bunch mm -hmm. of data points that would suggest that music and language originated together. They, they're pointing mm -hmm. out all these similarities. And then now here they get to this one big difference, Mm -hmm. But I'm still waiting for them to tell me what they think. Sure. Right. I'm, I'm hungry for that author's opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, you know, the, the first half of passage A is all just the similarities. Right in the middle of passage A, we get to this one noteworthy difference. And then I'm hoping they're going to give me their opinion. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. The difference was people are generally better at language than music. In music, anyone can listen easily enough, but most people do not perform well. And in many cultures, composition is left to specialists. Composition, I guess, yeah, musical composition is left to specialists. In language, by contrast, nearly everyone actively performs and composes. Um, okay, performs, that means writing and speaking. Or, or mm -hmm. performs means speaking, I guess, and composes means writing. Yeah, that's what they I think they almost have to mean that. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, given their shared neurological basis, it appears that music and language evolved together as brain size increased over the course of hominid evolution. There it is right there very clearly in line 19 and 20. This speaker passage a thinks that music and language had to evolve together because of this shared neuro neurological basis, despite the one difference. But mm -hmm. the primacy of language over music that we can observe today suggests that language, not music, was the primary function natural selection operated on. Oh, interesting. Music, it would seem, had little adaptive value of its own and most likely developed on the coattails of language. Okay. Now there's like an argument, right? There, that's, that's like totally the author's conclusion and there's evidence in support of that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So passage mm -hmm. A has actually made an argument. It's like a like an LSAT logical reasoning argument. Yep. So the evidence is, hey, you know, these two have all these shared neurological bases, but everybody's good at language and almost nobody's good at music. And so we can conclude from that that even though they did evolve together, it was language not music that natural selection was really operating on. Like if you couldn't sing, you could still survive. If you couldn't mm -hmm. speak, now you can't survive anymore or you can't find a mate or whatever. 
Yeah, and this is an example of where the conclusion comes in the last paragraph. That does not mean that it always does by any means. It really can come in a lot of different places, but I do know a lot of people assume that it has to come in the last paragraph because of college essays or something. <laughs> yeah, or because of ridiculous, horrible advice out there that's like, oh, just read the first sentence and the last sentence and then start answering the questions. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Passage A just said, yeah, music and language did originate together, but language was more important for natural selection. Yep. Passage B. Darwin claimed that since, quote, neither the enjoyment nor the capacity of producing musical notes are faculties of the least practical use to man, they must be ranked amongst the most mysterious with which he is endowed. <laughs> so <laughs> Darwin here kicking off passage B with like, yeah, man. I don't see how natural selection really gave a shit about music. Yeah. It's, it's and, least practical use to man. So you just did two things that I think a lot of people don't take the time to do. One is you summarize the main point of passage A. And two, you took what is a convoluted quote by Darwin and you translated it into an idea that your mind can then sit with. Yeah, and, right? and, and it's also it's an agreement with the last the last paragraph of passage a right mm -hmm, darwin mm -hmm. is on the side of that conclusion in passage a darwin thinks natural selection is not going to give a shit if you can sing or not yeah um and so darwin here is expressing puzzlement like wow why do we even have this ability because it doesn't do anything for us as far as natural selection is concerned so that's actually a third thing so one was summarizing the first first passage two was turning convoluted quotes or sentences into ideas you can understand. If you can't understand it, then you need to reread it. And three, seeing how the second passage relates to the first. There are so many people who, when reading passage B, just read and have no reaction whatsoever as to how that relates to what was said before or what they even think about it. And I say, well, okay, so what did we just figure out here? And it's like, uh, we figured out and then they just quote what was said or something along those lines. Like, no, wait, this part of the passage is consistent with the previous passage or it's inconsistent or it's it's kind of a tangent to what the first passage was saying. Like, you should be aware of all that. Yeah, well, I'm comprehending, right? I mean, notice I'm not memorizing all of the details, all the neurological whatever from the first passage. I mean, I don't I don't know what the, the exact specifics were. But I do know what passage A broadly said, and when passage B kicks off the way it did, I can recognize that Darwin seems to be in line with that conclusion from the end of passage A. I'm yeah. not in any hurry to get to these questions. You know, these questions, I want to make these questions easy. And the way mm -hmm. I do that is by understanding what the passage says. Yeah. The questions are just full of traps. You know, four out of five of these answer choices that we're going to get to are going to be wrong. And the deeper I can comprehend the passage, the more wrong those wrong answers are going to sound. Therefore, the quicker I can get through those wrong answers. Yeah. That's where we're really going to go fast, you know, and not like we're going to try to go fast, but we're going to take our time with this passage or with these two passages here in the comparative reading. We're going to take mm -hmm. our time with these passages and then the questions are just going to be easy. And we're going to fly through the questions because they're easy, because we understood what the passage said. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I don't know here, and if I was thinking about you know making a prediction for passage B, my prediction here is, I don't know yet, Like, do you think passage B is going to agree or disagree with Darwin on this? 
Uh, I have no idea. I mean, my prediction, which can go either way, it doesn't really matter, but since Darwin is sort of a revered figure, I would suspect that this person might agree because it's Darwin, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, nine times out of ten, you quote someone else to disagree with Yeah, them. and especially there's that word claimed there. Darwin claimed, claimed this, yeah. right? So it's yeah. like... It wouldn't surprise it wouldn't surprise me if Passage B agreed with Darwin, but it also wouldn't surprise me if Passage B said, "Hey, wait a minute, not so fast, Darwin." Yeah, if it said like Darwin predicted or acutely observed. Yeah, or <laughs> acutely observed. Yeah, yeah, no, but claimed has does have a little bit of a raised eyebrow in it, right? Darwin mm-hmm. said, "I don't know." Okay. I suggest that the enjoyment of and the capacity to produce musical notes are faculties of indispensable use, here it is, to mothers and their infants, and that it is in the emotional bonds created by the interaction of mother and child that we can discover the evolutionary origins of human music. So yeah, I mean, Passage B is going opposite of Darwin here, specifically saying, hey, Darwin, you thought that this was, you know, of no practical use. But I'm saying, what about mothers and their infants? What about creating these emotional bonds? Um, I guess, what if, I mean, does every mother sing to her child? Um, maybe Passage B isn't going that far, but. Sorry, I just noticed it's kind of funny. When Darwin said, of the least practical use to man, yep. I am sure that he meant humankind, but it is a little ironic to use. The masculine oh, well, any, the fact that... <laughs> yeah, and, and any academic, which, you know, whoever wrote Passage B, we can presume that there's some academic, uh, some modern academic is going to be, like, hammering on the Darwin's use of the word man there. And, hey, you might have... For- it's an easy argument to make, you know. You yeah. forgot about women. What about the use <laughs> to women? And then Darwin even says the word endowed in line 32, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I can see the... Uh, the response there to this saying, oh, well, this is a paternalistic kind of an interpretation. And Okay. Anyways, Passage B is going to try to make the case that uh, this music actually is adaptive, that it did. Uh, it is, it, she says, indispensable use to mothers and their infants. Yeah. Um, because of emotional bonds, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to learn about this more, I guess, for the rest of Passage B. Yep. Even excluding lullabies, which parents sing to infants. Human mothers and infants under six months of age engage in ritualized, sequential behaviors involving vocal, facial, and bodily interactions. Using face-to-face mother-infant interactions filmed at 24 frames per second, researchers have shown that mothers and infants jointly construct mutually improvised interactions in which each partner tracks the actions of the other. Such episodes last from one half second to three seconds, and are composed of musical elements, variations in pitch, rhythm, timbre, volume, and tempo. So now we have this high-tech modern study tracking mothers and infants, and they are using these musical elements to communicate with one another. Yeah, I was just thinking about what I was thinking about as you were reading, and you know you're involved when you're thinking about what this is actually what's actually going on like i was i was visualizing a mother and a child interacting thinking about wow they're completely unaware of the fact that 
they're interacting at such a fast pace. Like they're aware of the fact, obviously, that they're interacting with each other, but they don't, they're not aware of, you know, how quickly these sort of minute yeah. things are going on, yet apparently they're going on, and the mother is just doing this without realizing it, but it's probably helping the child learn, learn language, learn interaction, yeah. learn human social ability, all those things, right? And it's just kind of fascinating because it's like, wow, this is... Um, this is interesting. That's a I, that's a good point there. I mean, the fact that you're you're into it, you know, you're actually now reading this for pleasure, mm-hmm. which is which is ideal. I mean, it's easy to like roll your eyes at the LSAT reading comprehension and be like, oh god, what is this boring bullshit going to be about? I don't want to read this. But I think the truth is that because you read for comprehension and because I read for comprehension, by the time I get done with these, I'm usually like, oh, huh, that was interesting. I never would have thought that music would have been like an evolutionary, uh, uh, evolutionarily preferred kind of a trait. But here we have this study where I can absolutely picture a mother just sort of humming to her child. And this is way before the child's first words. Mm-hmm. But the child might be matching pitch and rhythm and, you know, volume and tempo and those kinds of things. And totally subconsciously, the mother and child could be communicating here sort of mm-hmm. just sort of humming to each other kind of thing yeah cool should we read the last paragraph yeah okay. yeah what evolutionary advantage would such behavior have i don't know you tell me <laughs> <laughs> well, they're into questions yeah well i guess they're gonna tell me now like exactly how this would be because because so far we just had mother and child sort of humming to each other and communicating a little bit but what's the evolutionary advantage yeah. Okay. In the course of hominid evolution, brain size increased rapidly. Contemporaneously, the increase in bipedality caused the birth canal to narrow. Ugh. This resulted in hominid infants being born ever more prematurely, leaving them much more helpless at birth. This helplessness necessitated longer, better maternal care. Under such conditions, the emotional bonds created in the pre-musical mother-infant interactions we observe in Homo sapiens today, behavior whose neurological basis essentially constitutes the capacity to make and enjoy music, would have conferred considerable evolutionary advantage. I think it's important to, to try to articulate what that evolutionary advantage actually is, because they didn't actually state it. Yeah, so what are you thinking? That the mother's going to give a shit about the kid and want to actually take care of the kid. Yeah. Right? It says it says the helplessness. Now, the helplessness was caused by two things. Mm-hmm. Um, it says that our brains were getting bigger. And it says that our uh, we were walking upright. So the birth canal got narrower, which meant that then the kids had to be born more prematurely because we got these narrow birth canals and these giant heads. Yeah. And so we have to give birth to these kids quicker. And so now they're helpless. And they need, it says, the helplessness necessitated longer, better maternal care. Yeah. And then, so I guess, the because the, it, it, it definitely doesn't say it. It only uh, implies it. That if the mother and child are sort of humming and singing to each other and having these little interactions, that then that is going to lead to longer, better maternal care. Yeah, I think one thing that helps here is actually ignoring... Not that I would not read it, but rereading this last sentence, taking out the um, 
the n dash m dash the part uh, that's part. in the dashes yeah mm-hmm. yeah so when you read it that way under such conditions the emotional bonds created in pre-musical mother infant interactions we observe would have concert conferred considerable evolutionary advantage that goes exactly to your point because the sentence right before said it said that we needed better maternal care and it's like well if the interactions confer this advantage then that would most likely lead to better maternal care yeah so that's part of what comprehension is we're boiling it down we're ignoring some not ignoring but we're just sort of setting aside some of the detail and some of the actual just every single individual word because we've got the idea the idea Mm -hmm. here is hey the kids are helpless they need more care this music thing is an evolutionary advantage because it makes the mother and child you know it makes the mother give a shit and not just leave the kid laying there on the ground yeah so here's here's a interesting twist i have probably about uh, 10 minutes or so so that's going to be pretty short for going through all these questions but i guess we can try to go quickly and sort of see how that goes yeah and you know what if you have to drop out and i have to do the last two i think the listeners aren't going to care uh, I've heard I've heard otherwise, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> Your mom and who else? <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's all that I know who listens. So. <laughs> okay, so let's let's. I, you know, I don't think it's going to be too hard to do these questions. Actually, actually, we'll see. So no, yeah. number nine, both yep. passages were written primarily in order to answer which one of the following questions. What? Why don't you just say it, Ben? Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was I was moving my test around. Now I'm not. Now I'm not comprehending anything. I'll, I'll say it then. Okay, Both passages yeah. were written primarily in order to answer which one of the following questions. Without looking at the answer choices, both passages were there to answer the question of whether music is uh, an evolutionary adaptation. Like, did music was music selected for? Yes, and I think this is a good point. If you can answer the question in reading comp, answer it. Try, and it doesn't have to be a complete, perfect answer. It just has to be some sort of attempt a is about larger brain size Uh, what or what evolutionary advantage did larger brain size no what about it's about music i mean we need music Music. in the answer choice b why do human mothers and infants engage in bonding behavior that is composed of musical elements uh passage a didn't talk about that at all nope c what are the evolutionary origins of the human ability to make music um sure evolutionary origins of the human ability to make music that was in both passages I could see picking C. Sure. D, do the human ability abilities to make music and to use language depend on the same neurological systems? I don't know that passage B was at all about neurological sim- systems. No, I feel like they mentioned that at the end on line 60, neurological basis. But even if this is something that could be answered. I don't think it was why it was primarily written. Right. The question is both passages were written primarily in order to answer which one of the following questions. And that is not what passage B is answering. Mm-hmm. Um, e, why are most people more adept at using language than they are at making music? Passage B definitely didn't talk about that. So our answer nope. pretty easily here is C. Yeah, okay. I agree. Number 10 then. Each of the two passage mentions the relation of music to what? Huh, that's a good question. Language slash connection. And passage A was about language, but I don't. I feel like passage B was more about like the connection, and so that seems like a broader idea. 
Yeah, let's just look at the answer choices. A says bonding between humans. I don't believe Passage A talked about that. Yeah, that was more about uh, language. And our, and our different abilities with each and mm-hmm. how, you know, because we're good at language, that must have been what was evolutionary selected for. Yeah. Evolutionarily selected for. Uh, B, human emotion. I don't remember Passage A talking about human emotion. C, neurological research. Mm, I mean, passage A is talking about brain imaging studies. Yeah. And it says that in these brain imaging studies, they suggest that music and language are have the same whatever system. Yeah. Uh, is passage B also about neurological research? Well, the mother infant, but no, that's really, that's not neurological. Yeah, I don't think that's neurological either. Okay. How about the increasing helplessness of hominid infants? Okay, that's passage B. Yeah, that was not passage A at all. Yeah. How about the use of tools to produce sounds? Mm, No. That was mentioned in A, right? And I don't remember any tools in passage B. So I didn't like, at, at first glance, I didn't like any of these. Yeah, but I, I'm feeling – so I'm trying to remember what we thought about A and B, but I, for, we said very specific reasons why C, D, and E are wrong. Yeah. So I feel like those are out. Yeah, I'm going back to A and B. I think it's either bonding or emotion. Yeah. So emotion is definitely discussed in uh, B, right? You had the emotional bonds sure. between the mother and child. You had both those in B. A and B yeah. are both in passage B. The question yep. is, is what's in A? Yeah. Um, hmm. Bonding between humans. I feel like that's a little strong uh, for A. Unless language is. Oh, look at this. We have rhythm, rhythm to communicate emotions. Where is it's that? Got it. This is at the beginning of A. I was just scanning back. Oh, rhythm. Both systems use intonation and rhythm to communicate emotions. Yep, there it is. I'm glad I took the time. Um, you know, I'm glad we took the time and didn't give up too quickly because you find it. I mean, it, it clearly said it in passage B. And then mm-hmm. in passage A, it said it right at the beginning. We, we missed it, but it specifically said music and emotion are related. So number 10, yeah. B. Yep. Okay, cool. cool. Mm-hmm. Number 11, it can be inferred that the authors of the two passages would be most likely to disagree over... I think you have to predict this one. What's your What's your prediction? Oh, the, the, the point that it was made at the very end, right? That Darwin agreed that, hey, there's not really any advantage here. And this person is saying, no, there's a clear advantage to music. Yeah, and that's what D says. I mean, they're disagreeing over whether the capacity to produce music has great adaptive value to humans. Passage B oh. said it was necessary, and Passage A said it's, like, worthless. Yeah. So number 11 is going to be D. Number 12, the authors would be most likely to agree on the answer to which one of the following questions regarding musical capacity in humans, what would they agree on? That... We have it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do do humans have capacity for music? Yeah, they, they would both say yes to that. Okay, so yeah. A, does it manifest itself in some form in early infancy? I don't remember passage A talking about that. 
No, that was B. Does it affect the strength of mother-infant bonds? B again. Is it at least partly a result of evolutionary increases in brain size? That sounds like B for sure. I know B said that. I don't remember A talking about brain size necessarily. Oh, they did do neurological stuff. Nope. Line 20. It appears that music and language evolved together as brain size increased. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yep. So there's your evidence. 100% sure. Number uh, 12 is C. Number 13. Which one of the following principles underlies the arguments in both passages? I don't, I wouldn't try to make a prediction on that. I would just go into the answer choices. Yeah. A, did both passages assume or are both passages based on the the idea that investigations of the evolutionary origins of human behaviors must take into account the behavior of non-human animals? (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. Did both, no way. Did both passages say B, all human capacities can be explained in terms of the evolutionary advantages they offer. Way, way too strong. Yeah, it's if it said some, it would be the answer, but mm-hmm. all I don't like. Okay, did they uh, both say the fact that a single neurological system underlies two different capacities is evidence that those capacities evolved concurrently? Wait, so this sounds like A, but not b right because yeah, the neurological system no because i think b might have also said something about this about how the language and music are kind of the same so with that maybe hesitation not, i would keep it open maybe oh, okay. and then just see what do you think yeah that's fine okay i was gonna mm-hmm. go look for evidence for c but d mm-hmm. the discovery of the neurological basis of a human behavior constitutes the discovery of the essence of that behavior what? I don't even know what that's talking about. Moving on to E. <laughs> the behavior of modern day humans can provide legitimate evidence concerning the evolutionary origins of human abilities. I think so, because passage A is saying we're better at language, therefore mm-hmm. language was selected for. And passage B is saying, hey, look at these mother-child interactions. That's evidence that um, music was necessary for evolution. Like th- This is almost... I mean, I don't want to say obvious answer, but it's like, unless they were digging up bones or something to, to make their case, this is how you're going to... Yeah. This is how they made their argument. Yeah. So I would I would pick E and I would not even go back and look at C. Yeah. Okay. Last one. 14. Which one of the following most accurately characterizes a relationship between the two passages? So which one of these did happen? Okay. Passage A and passage B use different evidence to draw divergent conclusions. Uh, yeah. I mean, that happened. Yeah, they, they one was talking about mother-baby, one was talking about this other study, and then they definitely came to different conclusions. I would keep that open. I would pick it. I mean, yeah, I would skim B, C, D, and E, but A is going to be the answer. B, um, did passage A pose the question that passage B attempts to answer? No, they both pose their own questions. Yeah. Did passage uh, C, did passage A propose a hypothesis that passage B attempts to substantiate with new evidence? No, passage B was disagreeing with passage A's hypothesis. Yep. Did passage A express a stronger commitment to its hypothesis than does passage B? No, they both love their hypotheses. 
Yep. E, did passage A and passage B use different evidence to support the same conclusion? Hell no. <laughs> no, they they reached opposite conclusions. Yep. So the answer for number 14 is A. Cool. Wrapping it up there, you know, just, hey, we, we take all the time we need to make sure we understand the passages. The questions then, a lot of them seem really easy. We do have to, from time to time, go back to the passages, but it's not like that's our standard play is to just plan on going back to the passages. We should be able to answer, what, half of these questions without looking back at the passages? Yeah. I feel like here we went back twice, and I, th I think that's reasonable. Yeah. No, certainly not every single question. Yeah. All right. Well, I know you got to go, so we should uh, wrap it up. Yeah. Thanks for uh, listening, everyone. It was fun. Yeah. Send us questions. Look us up on our website, thinkinglsat.com. Tweet me at infox. Uh, email both of us. Uh, help at thinkingelsat.com. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.